pounds. And, and I'll tell you why this is a painful number for me. This week begins, starting yesterday really, uh, a new season in the liturgical year, the, the church calendar, and it's uh, football season. <laughs> and I played football, I know that's hard to believe. Uh, I played football, I played junior high football, and in junior high football, at least in Kansas where I grew up, they would not only print out the roster, the name of each player, but they would also print out the height and weight of each player. And next to my name, there was 87 pounds, which if you know, if you're 87 pounds, you have no business being anywhere near a football field, but that was the case. And so that was on the roster, and I was the quarterback. And that sounds sort of glorious, but we never, ever passed the ball. And I'm quite certain the only reason they chose me is because they knew I was the one who would be able to memorize the playbook. Um, and so, so I was the 87-pound quarterback with no business on the football team. I had no brothers, so I didn't grow up roughhousing and kind of fighting and wrestling. I was and am a pastor's kid. Uh, and so we're not known particularly for our combat sports. Uh, you know, nobody's, Conor McGregor's not calling for a super fight, uh, nothing like that. And I became very aware at a young age that I would never win a fight with my fists, that that was a bad idea, that, that was not something that was in the cards for me. I looked for the picture of my 87-pound football career. I couldn't find it. This is one artist's interpretation. Um, <laughs> And you'll notice the knees and the elbows are larger than the biceps and the triceps. But in any case, it became very apparent. I was not going to win a fight with my fists. I was not going to be physically imposing or going to be able to intimidate people with my fists or with my stature. But I also learned something else at a pretty young age. And that is, I did have kind of a gift for words. I was terrible at math. I was terrible at science. I was 87 pounds, but I could handle words. And so whether that meant, you know, being good in English literature or being able to write a paper that served me well later on in my academic career, or whether it meant coming back and being ready with a sharp, sarcastic, biting remark to my sister or to my friends, I learned that even though my fists weren't particularly powerful and I was never going to win a fight that way, that words were and are powerful too. And in, in, in one sense, that's an incredible gift. That's an incredible, it's a very good thing. But it has, it has consequences as well. As I learned that words could be weaponized and I could get attention by being the funny kid or the kid who put somebody else down or something like that, that words are powerful and that can be good and that can be bad. We'll start with the good. How many of you can remember something that was spoken to you at a young age, a sentence, a statement from a teacher or a parent that gave you incredible confidence, that kind of like changed the way you looked at yourself? Anybody remember something like that? No? I feel bad for you. <laughs> How many of you can remember something that had the opposite effect? Yeah. Words are powerful. And so today we're going to look at the power of the tongue in the book of Proverbs. We've looked at all these ideas through the course of this series. Pastor Rod has, I have. I've looked at lady wisdom, wisdom in the Proverbs. We've looked at the sluggard and the fool 
And today we're going to look at the tongue. And the reason that this is appropriate, the reason this is relevant, is that almost all of us, if we're honest, we have this sense that our culture and our country is losing its civility, I think. That words have become increasingly harsh in different spheres and there's statistics to even back this up in certain ways. I got these statistics from the, the 2017 Global Leadership Summit about the increased level of incivility. It said in 1980, 25% of employees reported disrespectful or rude behavior at least one time per week. So one quarter reported dealing with really disrespectful or rude behavior at least once a week. Next, in 1990, that had risen to 50%. So 50% now dealing with really disrespectful or rude behavior at least one time per week. And then when the survey was given again in 2015, 95% of employees reported that they have to deal with really rude or disrespectful uh, engagement in the workplace. Now, even if that's inflated, right? Even if it's inflated by us becoming overly sensitive or something like that, it still tells us that there seems to be a problem in our culture with, with words. One report said that the performance of someone who feels disrespected on the job goes down nearly 50%. So it becomes a performance issue when people are, feel disrespected or treated rudely. And then 25% of frustrated workers take it out on their customers. One manager said, customers can taste incivility in their food. <laughs> and I have to say, as someone who started his career in fast food, that might not be incivility you're tasting. Um, <laughs> but there are repercussions. There are repercussions to rude and incivil words, and our culture, many have noted, has become increasingly incivil. The linguist, famous linguist named Catherine Tanner, um, no, is that right? Deborah, sorry, Deborah Tannen coined this phrase, and she said, we have become, in many ways in our culture, what she calls an argument culture, an argument culture, and an argument culture is a culture where we've been sort of goaded to become combative and to be combative and to approach others with an adversarial frame of mind. She defines an argument culture as a culture in which when you merely consider the idea of another person, a different idea, that merely considering it is equated with condoning it. A culture when, when mono, where monologue is preferred to dialogue, kind of like right now, right? And then lastly, where we move past disagreeing with others, which we have to do many times or sometimes, to demonizing them. So considering equals condoning, monologue over dialogue, and from disagreeing to, to demonizing others. And she says all of this is sort of heightened or exacerbated by this phenomenon that she calls online disinhibition. Have you heard that phrase? Online disinhibition. And it's this reality, she says, where when we are online, whether we're on Facebook or Twitter, or the internet, cyberspace, whatever, we feel invisible and we feel unrestrained by normal social conventions. And so we engage with each other in ways that are less civil. Our words become harsher and more grating and more insulting. I know that's never happened to you, right? That's never, ever happened. But she says we've become this sort of argument 
culture in many ways. And if that's even a little bit true, then we need to listen to the book of Proverbs. We need to hear what Proverbs has to say. My, my, My idea, my sort of premise to begin with is that we need to hear what wisdom says about our words. And if you know that the first message I preached in this series, we looked at lady wisdom. Wisdom is personified in the Proverbs. Wisdom is, in the book of Proverbs, a woman, right? I I thought I would get an amen with that. But lady wisdom comes and teaches us how to live, and we need to hear what wisdom says about our words. And so I want to begin with just a few of the Proverbs. I'm going to do kind of what Pastor Rod did a few weeks ago and show you a variety of Proverbs that have to do with the tongue or have to do with words and how we use our words in, in, God's, in God's world. So Proverbs 15, verse 1. This is about gentleness. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So when we face people who are agitated, who are combative, who are looking for a fight because of our argument culture, Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. On the subject of mockery and maligning, it says this in 21:24: the proud and arrogant person, mocker is his name, behaves with insolent fury. And so if you were like me as a young person where you started to think that your ability to maybe jab or to mock was sort of like a spiritual gift, Proverbs says it's not, that it's connected with, with arrogance and, and, and pride. It says this actually on God's response to the mocking person. He, God, mocks the proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. God mocks the mocker but he loves, he favors humility. He favors the humble and the oppressed. And then this passage, this is the main text that I want to focus on today. It says this, the power of life and death is in the tongue. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death. Most of us, at some point growing up, we heard this phrase. It's a common sort of adage or phrase, and the phrase goes like this. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? And there's a sort of good intention behind that. We don't want to, like, just cast it aside without not having a good intention. We don't want to be overly sensitive. We don't want to be just overly, um, you know, crushed by, by things that people say or will never make it through life, right? But the problem is that that statement, sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me, if we're honest, it's not biblical at all. In the Bible, words are powerful. In the Bible, it says that the power of life and death is in the tongue. So words matter in the scriptures, right? This proverb, the, the image that it's evoking is a scene from the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, to talk of eating its fruit, right? And to talk of the power of life and death, there are two trees that are spoken of in the Garden of Eden. There's the tree of life, and it's this tree that gives life. 
um, ongoing life to Adam and Eve, and it's in fact why they're banned from the garden. It says at the end of Genesis 3, if we don't do this, that they will take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so there's this tree that gives life when you eat its fruit, but there's also this second tree, this tree that's called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says that when you eat of its fruit, you will surely die. And so Proverbs connects the fruit of the tongue, our words, with the, the ability to give life or death to those around us. Words are powerful. Words have all sorts of potential to either bring healing or blessing or cursing and, and destruction in their wake. In the Bible, words create worlds. When God wants to create out of chaos, he speaks. He says, let there be light. And the world comes into being, comes into ordered existence. And so because of that's the proverb, that the power of life and death is in the tongue, what I want to do today is to just sort of look at both of those words, death and life, and to just ask the question, how is that true? How is it true that the tongue has this power of death and, and this power of, of life? And what does that mean? How does it play itself out in our actual daily lives and the way that we speak? And what's the reason that the book of Proverbs gives this much power to, to our words and to, to the tongue? And so I want to start with the negative in preaching class. Always start with the negative, end with the positive, right? We'll start with death. And then we'll end with life and how the tongue gives life. But first, death. I think one of the first things we could say about the scriptures is that the reason that the tongue is given this power of bringing death is that it is unruly, it's wild, and it is resistant to change. How many of you ever tried to stop saying a word? or a particular phrase that's entered into your vocabulary, and you try and you try, but it just springs out of your subconscious, right, when you're stressed or whatever. The tongue is resistant to change. It's wild, it's unruly. And one of the passages that shows this is from the book of James. James chapter three, he's sort of building on this idea that we see in the Proverbs that the tongue can bring life, but also death. And he compares the tongue to all of these little instruments, these little implements that are small, but they have this massive effect, this massive um, change that's brought about because of their use. And so he compares the tongue to a rudder on a ship, like this little, this little rudder that turns the whole ship. And he says the tongue is like that with our body, with our life. He compares it to a bit that's placed in the mouth of an animal, in the mouth of a horse or a mule. And it's this little thing in the mouth, but it can turn the whole creature one way or another when the rider pulls on the bit. And then he compares it lastly to a fire. This thing that's just little, they even call it in the book of Acts, tongues of fire, right? These little flickering flames. And they're small, but they have this massive potentiality for carnage or for good. And we're seeing that even right now in the city of Los Angeles as they face one of the biggest fires that they've ever encountered. That the tongue is like a fire, James says. And then he says this, all kinds of animals, birds, 
reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So there's that word, death, right? With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. What's he saying? That we can tame all sorts of animals. And even in the ancient world, they would have these you know, displays. Caesar talked about bread and circus. And they would bring these animals in, these exotic animals. And even now we have the circus. And you might have the dancing bear. And you might have the lion tamer and all things like that. And so we can tame all these wild beasts. But James says, no man, no human being can tame the tongue. It's, it's unruly. It's wild. It's resistant to change. I know to talk about accents is a strange thing because no one has an accent in their own mind, right? It's just when you go somewhere else that you realize that people don't talk like, like you talk. And so I'm from Kansas, and so of course I don't have an accent, right? That's where they send the newscasters to lose their accents, right? But everyone else has an accent. And, and so one of the things that's funny is sometimes we, come, we become self-conscious about the way we speak. And, and I've adopted a little more of a southern drawl. And when I went to England, they were like, oh, yeah, you're from the south. I said, no, I'm not. How dare you, right? We adopt the accent of our surrounding culture. And we adopt the ways of speech that we're brought up with and our parents and our friends from school. And we can try to lose an accent Maybe some of us have become self-conscious about our accent and we try to lose it. Maybe we try to lose that Texas drawl or that Southern drawl or the Minnesota accent or the, the Boston accent. You, know, you park the car and Harvard Yard. No one, you know, I don't try to lose that. I don't want to talk like that. But when we get around friends or when we get excited or we get back in our parent culture, the old accent just creeps back in. And we've all experienced that. The tongue in those ways and in more serious ways, is unruly and resistant to change. James says, no man can tame the tongue. I take, it's sort of, that's a discouraging word. Like, well, it sounds impossible. Great, what's next? Um, But I think the encouragement is that while no man can do it on their own, that God can. The Holy Spirit is not a man. And the Holy Spirit can mold and shape our speech when we allow the Spirit in, when we allow the Spirit to work in us. But the tongue is death-giving in some instances because it's resistant to change. It's unruly. It's wild. A second reason that the tongue brings death, according to the, work, to the, to the book of Proverbs, is I think we have to say that our words the words we use with others, the tongue has a unique capacity to induce shame. Shame. And you might say, well, that's, shouldn't we feel ashamed of certain things? Like, it, it depends a little bit on the definition of the word, right? But one of the reasons that the tongue can be death-giving is it has this unique capacity to bring shame. And there's a, there's a therapist and a researcher by the name of Brene Brown. You may have seen her. And she studied 
over the course of her career, she's a professor at the University of Houston, and she studied the effect of vulnerability and shame upon society and upon our lives. And she gave a talk on vulnerability, a TED Talk, which is where this is from, recently on the subject of vulnerability. And she talked about going to bed that night and just having like a vulnerability hangover. Here she's talking about the virtues of vulnerability and she felt totally exposed in front of all these people and she said, man, if 5,000 people watch this, I'm gonna die. <laughs> and I checked right before this uh, message and have, to date, 30 million people have watched it. So, which, it's this massive popular viral video on YouTube. 30 million people is like numbers usually reserved only for like cats playing pianos and things like that. But she works with researching on shame. And in particular, she talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And so the, the definition you're working with uh, matters a little bit. And she says this, she says, we feel guilt for things that we've done. We feel shame for who we are at some deep, primal, abiding level. And so she says this, this may sound strange, but you'll have to just kind of go with it for a second. She says, I'm going to just say it, I'm pro-guilt. Guilt can be good. Guilt helps us to stay on track because it's about your behavior. It occurs when we compare something we've done or failed to do with our personal values. So she says, it's a good thing when you do something wrong if you feel guilty afterwards. And it's that spark, that prick within your soul or your psyche that causes you in some cases to repent and to turn to God for grace. And so guilt can be good. But then she says this, shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. And then here's the key thing. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. So while guilt can be good because it causes us to say, I need to, man, I need to repent. I need help, right? Shame begins to corrode the very part of us that believes we're capable of change. She goes on. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. You see the difference? And so one of the reasons that the tongue is powerful, and one of the reasons that Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of death, it brings death if we're not careful, is it has a, a unique capacity to bring shame into our lives. And for many of us, it happened at a young age where we were made to feel dirty or unloved or unintelligent. And the tongue brings death because it can bring shame. She says this, it won't be up on the screen, but I'll read it. She says, shame is the gremlin that says, nuh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that MBA. Your wife left you. I know your dad wasn't out of town on business. He was in Sing Sing prison. You're not pretty enough. You're not talented enough. You're not powerful enough. I know your father never paid attention, even when you made all A's, even when you made all state, even when you became CFO. Shame is the eternal critic. 
she says. So why does Proverbs say that the tongue can bring death, that our words have the power of life and death? One of the biggest reasons is because our tongue, our words, have this unique capacity to bring shame. Proverbs says it this way, the soothing tongue is a tree of life. There's that same image, right? Tree of life. But a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Brene Brown says that many of us as parents, I, I have four little kids, so I can, like, I'm super empathetic to parents. We're like, what do I do? <laughs> I'm out of my depth, right? But many of us as parents, she says, we try to bring about change in our children by shaming them because we know the power of shame. And she says, while sometimes that brings about a certain change, maybe temporarily, it has the side effect sometimes, if we're not careful, of also crushing their spirits. And that's the very same phrase that the book of Proverbs uses about the power of the tongue. It has the power to crush the spirit. Words, phrases like, you are so stupid, You always do that. Why do you always do that? Why are you like that, right? And she even suggests that we need to appeal to what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Phrases like, I know you're better than that. In our family, we don't say things like that, right? That's fundamentally different than than shaming with, with the tongue. The power of life and death is in the tongue. Shame becomes the eternal critic. One of my favorite quotes is from Teddy Roosevelt. It's a quote you've probably heard. It's all over the internet. It's been all over television. And we named our fourth child, our last child, Teddy. And one of the reasons we named him Teddy is I'd recently read a biography of Teddy Roosevelt here. He's this big, strong, brave guy who doesn't want their son to, you know, charge into life like Teddy Roosevelt but we talk about shame as the eternal critic, and Roosevelt has this, this fantastic quote about the critic. It's the critic quote, and it can apply to shame, it can apply to other areas. It's also called the man in the arena quote, and I'll just read it for you. It won't be up on the screen. It's not the critic, he says, who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory or defeat." I thought, man, that's, that's what I want my son to be like, right? It's not the critic. It's not the eternal critic that counts in the ends. It's the person who's actually daring to make a difference. The person who's failing, maybe failing over and over, but is at least trying to make a difference. And, and shame, in many ways, is the eternal critic. 
And so Proverbs says the power of life but also the power of death is in, is in the tongue. So much for death. Let's talk about life. Let's talk about the good news. Why is it that Proverbs says that the tongue and our words have a power to bring life? Why is that, that they have this unique capacity? I think one of the things you could say if you read the Bible from from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, and just survey all of the things that it says, one of the reasons that the tongue has the power to give life is this. Next slide. Words, oftentimes in the Bible, are the means by which God brings new realities, new creations into existence. And God can do anything however he wants, but in the scriptures, it's oftentimes through words, through speech, through saying something, uh, a name or something like that, that God brings new realities into existence. We said already in the Bible, words create worlds. And it begins in Genesis 1. It says that God speaks the world into existence. Let there be light. And so God uses words to bring forth a new reality. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As an academic, as a professor, I kind of would, I wanted to say, you know, faith comes by reading. (laughs) But it doesn't say that. It says faith comes by hearing. And for some reason, in many instances, the way that God breaks through to our soul or our spirit is when we hear the gospel. When the gospel comes to us and that faith becomes an auditory response, not just a visual response like you read something, but faith comes by hearing when we hear the word of God. When someone says to us, you matter. You may have been told that you are unlovely or unlovable. You may have been told that you're not smart or that you'll never amount to anything, but you matter to God. You matter so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. And you matter. When you hear that, faith comes by hearing, it says. A new reality, a new creation comes into existence. Think about the the use of names in the Bible and how a word, a word that becomes identified with a person, a name, is significant. Think of all the people who, when God moves in their life in a fresh way, he gives them a new name to correspond with a new future. Think about the, the figure of Abram, Abraham, this, this moon-worshipping pagan who encounters the living God and God gives him the name of Abraham, that he'll be a father of many nations. It's a name, it's a word. Think about Jacob, the deceiver, the heel grasper, the liar, And when he encounters God in this wrestling match, faith is almost always a wrestling match, but he emerges with a new name, the name of Israel. He who wrestles with, wrestles with God. It's a name, it's a word. Think about Simon, the guy who is always sticking his foot in his mouth. 
The guy who is always misunderstanding the way of Jesus. And in one sentence, he's declaring him the Christ. In the next sentence, Jesus is calling him Satan. The guy who is frequently, frequently misunderstanding Jesus' words. But Jesus says, you are Peter now. And on this little rock, I'm going to build my church. It's a name. Think about Saul of Tarsus. When God moves into his life and knocks him off his horse, he's now called Paul, the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planter in the history of the church. Words have this unique power. When God wants to bring out this new reality, he often does it through the tongue and through words. Words create worlds. Bob Goff, who's a Christian writer and speaker, He says, because of that reality, Christians need to commit to something. Christians need to commit in a culture that is increasingly negative and adversarial. We need to commit to over-communicate hope. Over-communicate hope. In a world that is increasingly divided, we need to speak words of life. The tongue has this capacity. I can think back My parents aren't perfect, just like I am far from perfect. Um, But I can think back of some times in my life where somebody like my dad said to me, "Um, you're smart, like you're, you're gifted, you can do this, and spoke words of life over me and the amount of confidence that that gave me, and I maybe never realized it, but the ability to give life by giving a gracious, encouraging word is is huge. My teaching professor, Haddon Robinson, he once said, you need three attaboys for every you jerk. (laughs) That that, that one you jerk carries so much more weight than that one attaboy, and we need to over-communicate hope because the tongue has the power not just of death, but it has the power of, of life. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And so as I thought about how to end this message, it's, it's one thing to say that, the tongue has the power of life, the tongue has the power of death, words matter. But the, the, the test of a sermon is Monday through Saturday. And the test of a sermon is application. And so I came across something that is called the 10 rules of respect. And this was given recently by a pastor by the name of Bill Hybels at a leadership summit, the Global Leadership Summit that took place just a, a month or so ago in, in Chicago area. And he was speaking to leaders, business leaders, leaders within society and culture, some of them pastors, some of them not. But he said, these are the 10 rules of respect that leaders have to embody and that in particular, Christian leaders have to embody. And so I wanna give these to you. Uh, you're not probably gonna be able to write them all down, but you can easily Google that phrase that's in your update, the 10 rules of respect, the Hybels Leadership Summit, and you can find them online. But but almost all of these connect with the tongue in some way or another. Almost all of them connect with, with words. And so here's the first one. Christians, he says leaders, but I'm gonna say Christians, must set the example for how to differ with others without demonizing them. Amen? As Christians, we cannot simply agree with everything that everyone says. There are going to be times where we have to disagree, 
where we have to stand up for truth, but he says it's important to differ without demonizing. Number two, Christians must be able to have a spirited conversation, to have spirited conversations, but without drawing blood. We're gonna have to have honest conversations, whether you're a boss or a father, a spouse, a student, but without the goal of just injuring and drawing blood. Because once we demonize the relationship in many cases and the chance to influence in many cases is, is injured. Number three, Christians must not, this is tough for me, Christians must not interrupt others who are talking. Right? It's tough because it's just practical. It's not like, you know, some spiritual thing that's just, you know, ethereal. It's like, Christians must not interrupt others. Leaders must not interrupt others when they're talking. I think about how many times, I'm an introvert, and so I'm completely comfortable talking to all of you as long as you're quiet. Um, But in interpersonal conversations, I'm a little bit more anxious and nervous. And so many cases, I can't remember your name because I'm not really listening. I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say next. And that leads to a lack of listening and sometimes a tendency to interrupt. Christians must not interrupt others. That's a tongue thing. It's a speech thing. Number four, Christians must set the example of limiting their volume levels, says the guy with the face mic, and refusing to use incendiary or belittling words that derail conversations. Some of us know because maybe we're in a position of authority that we have the bully pulpit and that we can use our volume or our authority to win. But sometimes in winning, we end up also losing. So he says we have to be paying attention to that. Incendiary words, volume levels, belittling belittling conversation. Number five, Christians must set the example of being courteous in word and deed to every person at every level. It's easy to be respectful to the CEO It's easy to be respectful to the person of of status or standing. One of the things that's fascinating about Jesus is that he shows grace and love even to the least of these, to to children who in the first century were not viewed as high-status people. He says, come to me, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes. Christians must set the example of being courteous in word and deed to persons at every level. Number six, Christians must never stereotype. This is a painful one too. We must never look at people and pigeonhole them into some big category and then treat them because of that in ways that are less than godly and less than gracious. Christians must never stereotype. Number six, Christians must apologize immediately when they're wrong instead of denying or doubling down. I don't know anybody who thinks this one's easy. Right? Any spouse, anyone, our natural inclination is to do exactly the opposite, to dig our heels in. But he says, Christians, if we can do this one when it comes to our speech, just apologize that that will make huge strides, a huge difference in the kingdom. Number eight, Christians must form opinions carefully and stay open-minded if better information comes along. I thought about this recently. I was doing some writing and, and 
I thought about how I would have responded to Jesus in the first century, given my job. And so most of you know I'm a professor and I'm a teacher and, and so I'm a theology professor, which means in the first century, I probably would have been one of those, quote, teachers of the law. <laughs> and they didn't have a very good track record with Jesus. Um, they were not the most receptive to his message. And I've often thought, like, okay, if I had the same job 2,000 years ago, and this strange rabbi comes into town and starts saying things like, before Abraham was, I am, and I have the power and authority to forgive sins, and, and you know, all of this stuff, how would I have responded given my profession? And the problem is, I know myself, and I'm not confident. There is this challenge to stay open to what God is doing and to be open to better information when it comes along. Number nine, Christians must set the example of showing up when they say they're going to show up and doing what they say they're going to do. Consistency. Being a person whose words, the tongue, right, the, our words and our deeds line up. None of us do this perfectly. None of us are without uh, the need of grace, but this is one thing he says that we must attempt to do. Lastly, number 10, Christians must set rules of respect for everyone, especially if you're a leader in the organization, and we must enforce them. And this might sound sort of draconian or something like that, but he says here, here are some of them. Looking people in the eye, greeting people when we see them, showing hospitality to those we meet in the hallways at work or in the house, or at church, or in the world, anywhere, right? That the way we speak to each other matters for the kingdom. So, as you look at that list, or as you Google it later and look at that list, the question I want to end with today is this. What is the one thing that God has impressed upon your heart that has to do with the tongue? words we use and how they can bring life and death? What is the one area where we can grow together in grace in this area? Let's pray. God, we confess that we are imperfect. We are all works in progress, myself included. But we're challenged when we open your scriptures in places like Proverbs, to think differently about our words, to think differently about the tongue and its power to bring life and death. Lord, I thank you that for many of us, we maybe had death spoken over us at a young age, shame spoken over us, but I thank you that the story didn't end there, that the story ends with resurrection and new creation and that you bore our shame and that you gave us a new beginning. Help us to be those kinds of people to others, Lord, as we speak, the kinds of people who speak life, who speak grace and truth, mingled together, just as Jesus did. We thank you for that calling. We thank you for that uh, gift that it is to be your ambassadors into this world that desperately needs your love, just as we need it every, every moment of the day. And so we thank you lastly, Lord, for Jesus Christ, the Word, 
who became flesh. And we pray that we would become flesh this week as we interact with others in a way that's life-giving. In Christ's name, amen.